This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. May the 4th be with you. I'm Scott Lindenbaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. I love making jokes about the day because I know it always is at least 24 hours before our show gets out, so they're already dated by the time you're listening to them, if you're listening to it when it comes out, and it's very dated otherwise. Regardless, today we get to talk about how much uh, the BC NDP hates unions, surprisingly, how much money they have versus their competitors, and how much China hates Michael Chong. Just lots of feelings and emotions this episode. Uh, if you feel like you like us, patreon.com slash politicos, throw us a few bucks, get into the Slack, have lots of chats about politics and all things. Let's start here in BC in the legislature. A few things happening this week. Mostly they're debating uh, estimates, which is of interest to very few people, but sometimes there's some juicy quotes in there. I haven't followed the debates, honestly, close enough to know. So otherwise, it's a quieter week in the legislature. Nevertheless, the BCNDP introduced two new bills this week. Bill 27, the Money Judgment Enforcement Act. This overhauls how you go about getting money from people after the court has awarded you money. In the past, it's been not entirely an honor system, but like the first step is an honor system. And then if that fails, you have to go back to court and say, hey, can I garnish their wages? And they go, okay, try that. And then if that doesn't work, you have to go back to court again and try a different way. Uh, they're consolidating it all. So you only have to go back to court once to get the money that the court has given you, it sounds like. Un- cool. I mean, yeah. seems like a reasonably good idea to make the whole thing more efficient. It's not like courts aren't already overworked, so that cutting down on the number of times you have to go in front of them seems like a good idea. Yeah, and this is coming out of recommendations from the Uniform Law Conference of Canada and the British Columbia Law Institute. Uh, it replaces much of the current Court Order Enforcement Act. Uh, this mirrors legislation that already exists in Alberta and Saskatchewan uh, and should be in force, assuming it passes the legislature through regulation in 2025. Uh, this will also, like, the standardization is also helpful for larger cases or people who have issues in multiple provinces. Um, but yeah, seems uncontroversial, like, as long as, and there is like a minimum standard here to make sure you don't bankrupt someone, like the court will still take into account how much harm it does, while still making sure justice is done. So, like, I don't know enough to know if this is the perfectly balanced bill, but it seems like reasonable reforms that are necessary to have a functioning justice system. Um, similarly, is Bill 28, amendments to the Motor Vehicle Act, number two <laughs> for this session. The, the bill didn't have a press release, and I've commented on that before because every other bill except for like two this session, one or two, have had a press release. Uh, BC Today described it as shifting the obligation to ensure a leased vehicle is licensed and insured to the person or company leasing out the vehicle. My read of some of these changes without knowing it too well is that currently there are some holes in the 
Motor Vehicle Act that basically say if a person gets in trouble who's driving the car, they actually have to find the owner of it, not just the person driving it who might just be leasing it from someone else. And that's creating headaches. And so this is a very boring bill doing some technocratic amendments to make it work better. But maybe I'm wrong. Not all legislation is uh, super fun or sexy, but some of it is very necessary to have a functioning government. Yeah, the, the framework seems to be one of those like maintenance acts that you just kind of need every now and then to tweak something to make it work a little better. Yeah, and they're also taking out some gendered language while they do this, which I know has been a big project of uh, this provincial government. Like they brought in a couple miscellaneous statutes amendment acts that just like omnibus out his and hers and replace it with their or neutral terms. Um, so yeah, I mean that's good practice. Uh, in the Slack today, we were talking about uh, Patreon Slack. If you aren't in there, you should get in there. But one of the things that came up was the um, the ever-present discussion about uh, ditching the monarchy. And something I noticed when I went to actually look at the Constitution Act on the amended formula was they actually just have Office of the Queen in there rather than the crown or the monarch. So, uh, yeah, problem all around, up and down the hole. Sorry, you Charles, you don't uh, get to be king. You get to serve as the in the office of the... You could be King Charles of the office of the Queen of Canada, technically. There was some spice in the legislature today, though, as the NDP finally brought Bill 5 to second reading. This is a bill that had also not gotten a press release, probably because the government isn't very proud that they're doing this, but they feel like they have to anyway. This bill, I believe we've alluded to before, it puts the government lawyers into the uh, Professional Employees Association as a union rather than letting them form their own Lawyers Association union. Uh, they've been trying to unionize and they've been negotiating with the government for a while and it seems like those relations have fallen apart for a while and now the government is pushing forward its hammer legislation to push them all into one uh, one union uh, well the members and notably the union and the bcgeu are all against this they would rather workers be able to us freely associate yeah, I can see why the NDP would want to highlight this one, considering their uh, association with Labour on that and the history of the party. Uh, yeah, I know. I guess it just goes to show that, uh, like, it's easy to to be in favor of something in the abstract or when someone else is bearing the cost of it. But uh, I don't know. The re the real test of principle is when it actually uh, comes at cost of inconvenience to oneself and it uh, doesn't look like the NDP is doing a great job of actually adhering to the stated principles here. Yeah, the government seems to be arguing that this is a necessary push because as an employer dealing with too many bargaining union units is annoying, which I'm sure every employer out there would agree with, but every employer is not the government who can just like force things to happen. Uh, and so lots of hypocrisy coming through here. The lawyers, being lawyers, say this is unconstitutional and they will be challenging it 
as an infringement of their right to free association, which is in the charter. Which, at that point, who gets to defend the government if all of their lawyers are the ones suing them? I guess I have to go for outside counsel, but... That's an interesting The bill also requires legislation or the bill also excludes legislative drafters from joining a union. And so I'm sure they're not happy either. Uh, the BC Liberals had multiple people stand up today and basically kill the entire afternoon arguing against this. Uh, I read, watched a little bit and I read through some of the speeches. A lot of it is just like playing the hits of, hey, and here's this other time David Eby wanted something and he would, you know, push it through consequences be damned and they're not calling him a dictator but they're trying to paint him in that light like if he wants something he's just going to trample over everything else and they keep going back to the same examples uh renee merrifield brought up the she called it the preferential uh representation referendum i think she meant proportional but maybe she was trying to make a joke by saying it would have been preferential to the NDP. I don't, didn't quite understand why she flubbed that, but also she accused him of stacking the deck, but he also lost that referendum. Uh, they went back to the housing bill that is currently before the legislature to allow the uh, social housing in Vancouver, in Kitsilano, to move forward. They figure that's uh, an infringement of the due process of the courts, which should work its way out. And they cite a few other examples, but I mean, it, it's fun for BC United to be able to get to call out the BC NDP and say, hey, if we brought this bill forward, you'd be mad at us. Yeah, like, the hypocrisy angels, the uh, the main one that I think has actually sticking points. Just, I could easily see such a le- such legislation coming forward under a BC Liberal or BC United government. But yeah, it's the hypocrisy that really is where it stings. Rather than trying to relitigate every gripe the uh, the parties have for the past uh, five years. Yeah, I just I just don't understand why they want to pick this battle. Like, I get that it's probably easier to navigate as an employer but also like suck it up <laughs> like suck it up this is not a battle you need to fight guys you could just move on and not pick fights with unions and i get at least like the government lawyers are not your typical blue collar union of you know your stereotypical working class but in this sense, they're workers too, and they're better paid than many, but they still have all of the same rights and same pressures and uh, challenges as other workers. So respect them and let them form the union they want to do. From there, let's talk about the standings of the parties as the first quarter 2023 financials have come out. I don't think we need to come back to this probably for the rest of the year, unless something really interesting comes out. But Yeah, it really is like the same story we've talked about every time the financials have come out. Yeah, I did go back through and created a little chart, and maybe I'll put this on our uh, 
very underused Instagram account. Shout out to our Instagram page, uh, Politicoast account there. Look us up and follow us. Um, maybe I'll go back to Twitter. Probably not, but it'll be on Instagram and Facebook, the other evil companies. Looking at how fundraising between companies? social media, I'm tired. Uh, I have a chart here looking at how fundraising has been doing for the three large parties represented in the legislature since the start of 2022. The first three quarters of 2022 were not nice for BC United. Uh, Kevin Falcon became leader in February. Uh, at that time, the party had less than half the revenue that the BCNDP did. They did slightly better in quarter two and then just like didn't show up in Q3 that where the greens were in the same realm as them almost. Uh, but then by Q4, they'd actually closed in the gap to, you know, a hundred thousand where the NDP was at almost 1.3 million, the BC United, then BC Liberals at 1.2 million. And they're similarly gapped now with, uh, BC NDP pulling in 750,000 in the first quarter of this year, and BC United about 630,000. So they have improved their game since, you know, Kevin Falcon has come in, especially in the last few months. But it's not enough yet. Yeah, especially considering the uh, party's balance sheet was not great uh from when the uh 2022 yearly financials were released a few weeks back yeah as so i like recall they, their assets are like sitting on par with the green parties because the greens are running a super tight ship with no expenses and bc united is this like bloated whale of yeah like they, well they're yeah they're, their net fit position yeah it's pretty bad i think they probably have like more assets overall but yeah that's a whole lot more liabilities so um yeah they they have quite a bit of work to do to uh get themselves in election fighting shape and the fact that they have been able to close the gap is a good sign they they did not invest in retooling their fundraising after the uh the new rules were put in place early on in the ndp's first term and like they've been paying for that and uh, this may be a sign they're starting to turn that around a bit but definitely a lot more needs to be done in terms of the number of contributors, it's worth noting as well, like both parties, the BCNDP and BC United, have about 650 major donors for this period. Uh, the NDP of 684, BC United 651. So in that realm, they're doing pretty good. BC United has their major donor fundraising going pretty well. That's 250 to 1250 or whatever the max is today. Uh, where it's challenging for BC United is they have just under 2,000 people giving uh, smaller amounts of money, and the NDP has 6,000 for that first quarter. So the NDP has a much larger donor base that they can both continue to milk people for. They've, they've built a much larger yes. donor base. And, yeah, it's actually a wonder that they haven't... Uh, learn from how the federal conservative party managed to build out a a small dollar fundraising operation and has like they've been i think the top fundraising party pretty much consistently for like the past decade at least and yeah a party that sits in the same rough quadrant on the uh 
ideological spectrum is not able to do the same thing, and that's a sign they've not uh, done the same basic, like, behind-the-scenes work and dialing it. And, like, the CPC's fundraising is, like, super annoying and kind of the very much the outrage stuff, but that's also kind of what works and what drives small-dollar donations. And, yeah, I don't know. They actually want to be competitive. They they could definitely learn something from people in their same orbit. And I don't know why they haven't yet. Yeah. The federal first quarter numbers also came out this past week. The conservatives got $8.3 million from 46,000 people. For comparison, the liberals and NDP federally combined only got $4.9 million from about the same number of donors. The liberals got 31,000 donors and $3.6 million. So the conservatives got almost $5 million more than the governing party from more people. And so they're winning on every front there. Um, now, that doesn't mean they'll win if all of those donors are in the same prairie ridings and they're smoking them, but money does help. Yeah, it's it's not the be-all and end-all of politics. Like Campaigns that go into elections with less money can win, but uh, it is also a necessity to have money, and they are definitely in a stronger position for having more money both the federal conservatives and the uh, BCNDP. I think the other thing to note here is for the Greens, like their performance is improved slightly over Q1 2022. Um, but like they haven't seen a massive uptick. Like things are still chugging along. It's not embarrassing for a party of their size, but it's also not showing signs of growth. And so they will likely still be a force in the next election, but unless they can start to really capture some public attention, capture some momentum, and then turn that into dollars in the bank, it's going to be hard for them to really, I think, break through beyond a party of one to three seats. I, mean, I think even if they do get a bunch more money in the bank, they're still probably tapped out at... Uh... Three seats is probably their upper limit. Well, I'm just figuring if they're getting more money, they are getting more support, and maybe they have moved from sitting around 15 to 18% and moved to low 20s or something. And that opens up some options. Not having looked at the map and the math recently. but And I guess roughly good news for the BCNDP now. Their Q1 2023 numbers are a little bit below... Sorry, their Q1 2023 numbers are roughly the same as last year. That's not bad when you're winning in the fundraising dollars, but it's kind of EB's first proper quarter as leader, and it's not down, but it's also not up. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Well, he was effectively like leader by the time. Yeah, I think he was officially anointed in like october or november there was that extra delay too and then so like q4 was a good fundraising quarter for everyone because it's end of year push kind of stuff so everyone set really well that quarter it's complicated um that's enough talking about charts on a podcast i think Let's jump to federal politics. Let's talk about the latest 
Globe and Mail CSIS report leak and the fallout from that. China sees Canada as a high priority for interference and Michael Chong's family has been targeted, according to reports viewed by the Globe and Mail. Yeah, so this broke uh, earlier in the week. Uh, the fact that Canada's seen as a priority target, I think, is not exactly new and follows on a lot of the uh, discussions we've been having over the past couple of months. But the main thing that was particularly noteworthy here, kind of the bombshell that uh, got dropped, was that uh, the uh, People's Republic of China has been threatening the family of Michael Chong, uh, M- conservative MP. Uh, this happened back in 2021 uh, related to his efforts to spearhead the parliamentary motion to recognize the genocide of the Uyghurs uh, and that uh, a person at the consulate in Toronto uh, <clears throat> was intimidating uh, the family he has back in Hong Kong and that uh, CSIS was aware of this, but apparently he was not notified that this was happening. As And since then, the government has said that they were apparently also unaware of this. So the uh, Trudeau and the various ministers have denied holding this back and I believe have even said that they were not aware of these uh, concerns raised at the time and have since become aware roughly concurrently with the Globe's reporting on this, which strains credulity. So to be very specific for what the Globe and Mail says, uh, they say that in the report, an MSS officer... Um, so a Ministry of State Security, basically yeah, they're... One of China's. Uh, yeah. One of China's spies uh, sought information on an unnamed Canadian MP's relative that is later identified as Michael Chong, quote, who may be located in the PRC for further potential sanctions. Uh, They wanted to make an example of him and deter others from taking anti-PRC positions. So they don't say he was harassed or his family was harassed. They say that his family was considered for further sanctions. Now, long time people with long memories will note that Michael Chong and many other Canadian politicians were targeted by sanctions following that vote uh, around the Uyghurs that you mentioned. Um, There's a related note in here that uh, China's efforts are also um, pressuring activists and the diaspora community. So, I just wanted to make sure we have that clear because a lot of the reporting seems to suggest they're like going and creating strong threats on Chong's family when all I read it as is they may have been considered for sanctions, which isn't actually surprising when we consider how sanctions have been done by Canada and by most countries. I'm not saying it's good. Well, I mean, generally we've targeted like foreign officials, not just random family members. So when I look are, at how we've targeted like, Russia, we have targeted aristocrats and f- 
major officials and I believe we may have gone to some relatives in those like most yeah like where there was evidence that they were like using family members to try and skirt sanctions not just as like a general we're gonna hit everyone uh even tangentially related to them now the second part of this that you mentioned is like the follow-up stories where trudeau says he wasn't briefed on that um which is then contradicted by Chong uh, and general complaints. And now we're in this muddy, muddied water and Canada has summoned the ambassador and is considering expelling, although expelling diplomats, I've seen a couple of reports flag is like, is super rare and will naturally promote a backlash from China. And so there is a, has an understandable hesitation from the government there. But it's another one of these um, CSIS China stories where the the reality and the facts seem very muddied by the trickle of information we get through anonymous sources to media that is then denied and then counter-denied. And I'm not entirely sure. Like, it is possible that China didn't take the uh, accusations or the threats of sanctions to Chong's family seriously. And that's why they went, we are not going to escalate these. We're going to know. You mean Trudeau did, not China didn't. No, CSIS, sorry. I meant CSIS didn't take them seriously. And so that CSIS didn't escalate them beyond that. In which case, it seems entirely reasonable. Like, police and security are not under obligations to tell everyone about everything they get told about them. Like, a lot of bullshit gets sent to, you know, false tips and things, both intentionally and unintentionally, and not everyone needs to be informed about all of that. So there is some, like, reasonable doubt there. I have no clue if Trudeau saw this document or not, and maybe he did, but it was unnamed, which is also weird. <laughs> the whole thing smells... Again, it smells enough where I think that like hesitating before taking a major uh, diplomatic move, like expelling diplomats, is at least a reasonable course of action. Like figure out what's going on first. Well, like this was also like two years ago. Like they've had plenty of time to figure out what's going on. This is not the first time uh, this particular diplomat, uh, Xiao Wei, probably mispronounced that. Um, has been implicated in all of these uh, uh, interference matters. Like, at some point, the government does need to do something, and the summoning the ambassador, basically a a sternly worded talking to, is doesn't exactly cut it either on this. And yeah, CSIS doesn't have to inform everyone, but we're talking like a member of parliament here. Like, when there are concerns that they are being targeted. Yes, he should absolutely inform them on this. And it's kind of inexcusable they didn't. <clears throat> In this case, because we are not talking about just, you know, ra any random person. We're talking someone who is the foreign affairs critic for the official opposition uh, and is also uh, 
just a parliamentarian and that like parliamentarians should be in addition to like every other Canadian, but particularly parliamentarians should be in the group that CSIS is tasked with protecting. So somewhere something failed pretty bad and there needs to be a, a more fulsome response to all of this than, you know, weeks, months at this point into the public uh, China interference stories on this. And at this point, years into uh, this being something that CSIS has identified and been raising internally, there does need to be something more than just, oh, we're finally getting around to talking to the ambassador about this. And well, we don't know the- why it didn't go higher in CSIS, right? We're not... We're getting well, parts of stories leaked from people with unknown motivations. Uh, further reporting has indicated this at least went to the Privy Council office. Like, it didn't just stay within CSIS. So, the breakdown's more than just them deciding this isn't worthwhile uh, bringing up. But yeah, like, we sh- should be sent any of the diplomats that are doing foreign or doing interference in Canada or threatening uh, Canadians or intimidating them or their relatives. Yeah, we should send them packing. Uh, It's not uncommon for states to give their various agents diplomatic covers because it means they can't be arrested or killed. But like what happens when one of those is caught is that they get sent home declared persona non grata and like the fact that we aren't doing it here does send the signal that we're okay with it and at some degree and like that's not a signal we should be sending when other countries are interfering in our domestic business we expel this person and they arrest chong's family it's not a it's not likely reading the cbc reporting and analysis on this there's likely to be different kinds of signals, but China has arrested Canadians before, famously. And why wouldn't I'm- they do it again? <laughs> like, these are the kind of serious actual considerations that I think the Foreign Affairs Office is considering. And that's not to say they're for not taking serious. two years? I think they haven't considered it for two years. I think they got the well, report. That's it didn't also have the serious problem. <laughs> Where they made the assessment that it's not worth it. And, you know, it, I think there is grounds for gray here. Like, again, we don't have all of the information that the Privy Council Office has. We don't have all the information that CSIS has. We have part of a story that isn't good. What's, like, the other thing that's always bad in this that I think we can both agree on is why does Trudeau suck at responding to anything that happens yeah like like, his first response is oh i learned about this from the globe and mail it's like you tried this strategy before yeah like not only is it untruthful but like it's the same thing they tried to lie about before and didn't work for them then and i don't know why they're going back to that well and like the whole they have like consistently given the vibe that if that 
like they're not all that concerned about this and like probably part of the reason is is like most of the uh interference has been targeted at uh their political opponents which is not great like politics is supposed to stop at the water's edge like you know we're all canadians first and if the trudeau government like can't look past their own domestic politics on this like at some point you know they lose the uh the moral authority to govern if they're not willing to put kind of the needs of the country ahead of their own narrow political desires i just want a more fulsome answer from trudeau than yeah like, first is- like i didn't know it's like oh that thing well that went part of the way through the pco yeah and also like the first one of the story uh first bit of the foreign interference story what broke early february maybe even last week of january i, I can't recall the exact there was some stuff actually in november i think of last yeah, year okay but like it really got big in early part of this year it is now may like one of the first things that should have happened is the pmo should have called up CSIS and be like we need to know everything uh that's related to this because this is a big problem and if he's finding out new stuff about things that about interference and threats against members of parliament and their families from years ago just now when the media is reporting on like that's a bigger problem like there's no way the government looks good in all of this and it's all once again i think pointed to the need for an inquiry because not only is there the question of okay what was the nature of the interference and how do we ensure that doesn't happen again but like increasingly there's the question of what did the prime minister know and when did he know it and what did he do with that knowledge and there that is the part that's increasingly unsatisfactory Chong, so the story that it went to PCO is via Michael Chong, which he was told by Jody Thomas, uh, National Security and Intelligence Advisor, the Prime Minister. It seems credible. The other thing being noted here as well is that Chong was actually briefed by CSIS despite his claims. He says the conversations were general in nature, and they didn't tell him uh, that information was being collected about his family. Yeah, so he... He um, said that yeah, he had received briefings from CSIS around that time, um, I think related to both his credit portfolio and uh, and related to the uh, parliamentary bill. And the, the fact the, China really hates him because he yeah, really well, hates China. Yeah, I think some of it was also related to the, the motion he was spearheading through parliament at that time. But yeah, he's very adamant that uh, this was not something that was raised during that briefing. And he seems pretty credible on that. It It's still unclear to me if CSIS told PCO and Trudeau Michael Chong was being, and his family were being looked at for additional sanctions, or if it was just there are MPs being considered. I mean, there's a broader question of whether the government should have asked tougher questions, but again, we only get trickles of information out. We will have our response from 
David Johnston, the special rapporteur, in a few weeks. And I I don't know, maybe that'll give us something. I am simultaneously, I'm mostly pessimistic about that, let's be honest. Um, I don't know, maybe it will actually be a substantive report that gives some nice clean answers. It will not make everyone happy, I guarantee that. Because conservatives smell blood here, and so they're... and. They've been mad about China stuff for quite a while, and so they'll keep pushing on it regardless of what he says, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, well, it's not just like smells blood. You know, I think it's also like a very genuine concern about this sort of stuff, particularly when like their MPs are the are the ones that are seem to be disproportionately being targeted and threatened here. Allegedly. <laughs> I'm sure we'll have another scoop from the Globe and Mail or Global News in the next few weeks. Although maybe Global News is backing off since they are getting sued by uh, Handong. Um, we'll see. We'll see as well how those defamation lawsuits go through in the coming. Well, those are going to take a long time, but fun stuff. Let's close off on quick takes with one last uh, update on the state of the strike deal that I've been kind of partially covering. Uh, the good news in this last week is the PSAC and the, the PSAC union, all of it has reached deals with the government. There were two major sections of the union, the, uh, treasury board employees, which is most of them. And then the subset who work for CRA, uh, the former got a deal first and then the CRA members got a deal a little bit later. It looks like they all got pretty much the same kind of deal, although I'm sure there's slight variations in the language. Uh, notably, the government had been offering a 9% raise over three years, and the union wanted like, I think, 12, 13% over three years. Uh, the union got 12% over four years, which seems actually like the government won. I was thinking it was better for the workers in the end, but it actually seems like it works out to like 3 or 4% a year. It's not bad, but it's like keeping them on pace with inflation. So the real winner here is, I guess, Justin Trudeau, who gets to, you know, dust his hands off that he found labor peace after a two-week strike. Uh, you know, minor disruptions around... Uh, passports and tax time for some people, but overall, I mean, I haven't heard too many stories. I'm sure there are people who are seriously affected, but overall, seems the fact that you haven't heard too many stories is probably a sign that uh, I haven't gone looking. But yeah, but like there wasn't some like broad upswelling of dissatisfaction from all of this. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So yeah, like it Good it news. returns to normal. It's basically. I don't think there's a huge political win. It's more the fact that there's no political loss from this striking out. Yeah, I don't think there was going to be a win. Like once you have a strike on your hands, a public sector strike, you're in a pretty bad position as a government. So if you can get out of that without forcing them back to work and you can get a deal that's gives you four years of labor peace and is relatively cheap compared to what you've been demanded – that's positive. I think both sections also got some pretty strong wording that they wanted around work from home rights. I haven't looked at the exact 
details around that. So that is a win for them. Uh, and Wait, the f- main union got a managers will deal with it on a case by case basis. Uh, so like the government got a win in the sense that um, right, it's not a right to work from home. It's like not a right unions. to work from home, which uh, is what they wanted, and I. I think they were probably willing to go a little higher on salary if it meant they could uh, keep a formal thing out of the, the contract language. So there we go. Two weeks of striking over, uh, and they didn't have to force them all back to work, which would have put quite a bit of strain on the confidence supply agreement. But yay for labor negotiations. <laughs> And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.